this week's episode of the Bet on Yourself podcast, I'm talking with Christina Sass, the co-founder of Andela, which scales high-performing engineering teams by investing in Africa's most talented software developers. In this conversation, we covered a lot of ground, and she has a treasure trove of actionable advice here. I personally resonated with how Christina focused on entrepreneurialism in her first jobs by continually seeking out growth opportunities beyond her job description. You know, asking for more opportunities, being entrepreneurial within that organization um, is not a word that I would have ever used at the Clinton Global Initiative in 2009, but that's exactly what I was doing, was saying, hey, I want to take on more and more responsibility. I want to try this experiment and see how it goes for the organization. And that I was rewarded by those efforts over and over again in my career path. She also highlighted ways in which she as a founder has created a company focused on culture, talent, and data-driven decisions with psychological safety at the core of her organization. We also discussed how we should make an effort to recommend women more since we as women tend to self-opt out in ways that our male counterparts don't. She also gave some critical advice on knowing when to say no and where to focus our energy, which goodness knows we all need in the current environment of global overwhelm and fatigue. These expert tips are drawn from her impactful career history. In just five years of founding Andela, she has hired over 2,000 developers and become known as the best place to work in Africa. Andela has campuses in Nigeria, Kenya, Uganda, Rwanda, and Egypt. Andela developers work as full-time engineers with companies ranging from Fortune 500 like Viacom and Microsoft to high-growth startups like Cloudflare and GitHub. Prior to founding Andela, Christina served as a senior advisor to the president and CEO of the MasterCard Foundation and at the Clinton Global Initiative, where she worked closely with President Clinton's office to create and implement innovative solutions to the world's most pressing challenges. This episode is impactful and will likely change the way you approach your work starting today. I am so happy to share this with you. Enjoy. So, Christina Sass, thank you so much for joining us on the Bet on Yourself podcast today. Thank you for having me. I'm really honored to be here. I have been looking forward to our conversation for a very long time, as we discussed before recording. I feel like you are the embodiment of everything we try and promote on this podcast. My mission statement is to create and inspire underrepresented entrepreneurs through actionable education. And I feel like that could be the subtitle of your entire life. So (laughs) those experiences. Well, thank you. Thank you. I'm excited to see who else you, you know, fits in that category and uh, just excited for the conversation. It's a great group of people. I've been really, really touched by how many people have said yes and leaned into this community of inspiring people. So what better place to start than maybe your foundation? I think a central theme to your career has been very purpose-driven, very education-centered, and I imagine that probably comes from your family foundation. So maybe you can describe to me, Christina as a little girl, and how you've been inspired into what became your future career pursuits. Sure. I think Christina as a little girl was extremely curious, very social. And then my father immigrated to the States from Germany. And so he took us on trips about every three to four years, we would take a big international trip. And that's when those trips were extremely um, influential. And I think that's when I really kind of blew my worldview open and I got even more and more and more curious 
um, about what the world looked like, all different kinds of people, how people lived and thought and moved and succeeded, et cetera. Um, and so really my, the foundation of work life is my father's drive for education and education that leads into employment. And, um, he was, my father was like dogged about education in, I say, as, as the only, you know, as sort of the dogged in the sense that like, um, in the way that only a German can be, you know, just utterly fixated. And I think my brother and I growing up in the United States were like, why is he so, you know, constantly uptight about this? And he really drilled into us that the finding the things that we loved to learn would dictate a lot of the richness of our lives and that he wanted us to find career paths where we were constantly learning and that that foundation was important. And he himself worked for IBM for years and years, even while he was still learning English. Like he literally was moving boxes in an IBM warehouse and then retired 30 odd years later um, with a rich career. And so they reinvested in him over and over again and allowed him the opportunity to learn and grow and took risks on him because he was a hard worker. And you see elements of his, that experience throughout Andela particularly, that when you invest in a human being and their human potential, if they continue to um, work hard and give that, uh, that you can so that sort of relationship that education employment relationship can be so much more yeah i think uh your dad and my dad have a lot in common actually <laughs> my, my childhood was very education focused it was always okay if you were doing your best but if my parents saw some delta between what i was accomplishing and what i was capable of there was absolutely an expectation of making up that difference and i think that has to always be pushing more. And another theme I hear in your dad's experience is really about creating opportunities for yourself. Um, and I see that model in your career about the different transitions you've had, the roles that maybe could have seemed small in scope that you just blew apart and really created opportunities that weren't obvious or maybe outside of the yeah. traditional realms of that job description. And that's a major theme on this podcast. So I know it's mm -hmm. a because it's going to be your entire career, but has there been a central theme or thing that where you've helped you identify opportunities where you can have bigger impact that maybe even your boss recognized you started yeah. ymca went into clinton global initiative um mastercard mm -hmm. as a co-founder like this yeah. is a big career progression for you well what you described really resonates and i think it's so i'll say one thing about my career path is that i did not experience a whole lot of fomo meaning that when I committed to a thing, I was like, this is the thing until it's not the thing. And I'm going to, you know, throw myself at it. So for example, and that, and, and also, you know, asking for more opportunities, being entrepreneurial within that organization, um, is not a word that I would have ever used at the Clinton global initiative in 2009, but that's exactly what I was doing was saying, Hey, I want to take on more and more responsibility. I want to try this experiment and see how it goes for the organization. And that I was rewarded by those efforts over and over again in my career path. So at the YMCA, I worked as a coach all throughout college and I studied philosophy, which serves me every single day. I love my philosophy degree, but I was obviously not going to get a full-time job. I was not going to take over my family's philosophy business. <laughs> so I needed a job after college. And so I loved um, the youth programs in Athens, Georgia. I found the YMCA to be really at the center of a lot of community efforts. 
And so I went for it and applied for this job as, as the director of the youth department after being a coach, you know, for many years. And it was an extraordinary experience. And over and over again, I said, hey, we need to diversify the board. That was a huge lift. I said, you know, we need background checks for every single employee in the building because we have 300 kids in and out of here. Like I really climbed a lot of mountains that I didn't even know how big they were with a fairly conservative organization in the deep South. And I was rewarded for it. I got more and more responsibility and, and pretty quickly like outgrew that. I was like, wow, I'm, I need to get out and do more. And then I moved internationally. I did an internship at Tomorrow's Youth Organization in Palestine. And I had done a ton of youth programs before that, had a lot of experience. And so when I came in, theirs was fairly new. And I just started making suggestions like, hey, I've done this before. Why don't you try this? Here's a template for this type of document. And they just threw everything at me. And pretty soon I was consulting uh, for them. And then at CGI, I basically got a glorified internship. So, and to set the context, I graduated in uh, 2009 in the middle of a global recession with a degree in international aid, basically. <laughs> it was not a recipe for success at that moment. And so I was happy to have a prestigious internship, but that's basically what it was, was a six month internship. And instead of trying to hustle on the side and apply for other jobs or you know work part-time, I just threw myself at it. And after that six months, was able to take a big step up in the organization as deputy director and then eventually director of the program department. Um, and so that experience of like asking for more, saying, hey, we could do this, here's an idea, can I own this project, really uh, rewarded me. And I think it made it less intimidating when I was, when the idea came about to start a company. I was like, this is, you know, it's just another big project and let's see what happens. Let's experiment and see. I really relate to that part of your story because I'm really impressed by how unusual that behavior is because it seemed to come really naturally to you. You weren't, you didn't self-limit yourself and think like, well, I'm just a glorified intern or well, I'm just the junior most member of this team at the YMCA. I think other people maybe have a little bit too much deference for authority <laughs> because I did the same thing at Amazon. It basically was like a glorified intern. There was no one at the company more junior than me. And similarly, I graduated from undergrad in 2002. We had just gone through the dot-com bust and Seattle was in a bad place mm. economically. And I worked directly for Jeff Bezos as my first job out of university wow. and was thrown into the deep end of the pool. And the good thing was, is I had the same attitude. I think it was just a little bit of ignorance, honestly. I didn't know that, that I was, shouldn't just be sharing all these crazy ideas. And at first they were met with a little bit of silence of like, okay, we didn't expect that. But then the more and more you have this, you build up this track record of, of trusting your instincts and knowing where to dive in, you create these, I, I kind of compare it to, you build your own doorway. And that's what yes. I you is you built doorways into opportunities that no one else was going to create or open for you. So yeah. To trust your instincts, or are you just mm. that just comes really, really naturally? Because for me, yeah. it was only a baby step progression to be to become bolder like that. It's a great question about how I originally got it. I think it it, it certainly harkens back to my childhood. My dad was like, "What's your what's your idea? Like, let's use your resources and initiative. How are we going to solve this? You know, you need to pick up the torch here and figure this out on your own." Um, and just like lesson after lesson like that. I re I'll never forget my car broke down on the side of the road one time and I called my parents, you know, crying and upset from, 
from the coffee shop. And my dad said, he was like, are you safe? And I said, yes, I am. You know, cars on the side of the road. And he's like, you're physically safe. He goes, great. I want you to formulate a plan and put it into place and call me back in 10 minutes and tell me what you're going to do. And then hung up the phone. And I was like, oh my God. I cried for three, four minutes and then I pulled it together uh, and and figured it out. And those those types of, of lessons I think gave me gave me the courage. And I'll give you one more example of this that that kind of like when no one else steps up, if you're the person, if you genuinely have a good idea, all you know, all somebody can say in power is like, no, and here's the reasons why. And so if you're offered an opportunity, so I'm not, I'm not telling people you shouldn't, you know, forge out there and send a huge memo to the entire company if that's not appropriate. But if you're in a meeting and someone says, does anyone have a good idea? And you do in fact have a good idea, absolutely raise it. And I'm sure you're this way. I'm this way as a boss, as a leader, I'll take an idea from anybody, you know, and that's just, that is a meritocracy when you truly create the environment for like a great idea to succeed. So that worked in my case. And so I'll give you my favorite example is one of the years that I ran the program department when I was still deputy director at, at CGI, we had this opening plenary, big opening ceremony that was sort of falling apart. The, is at the same time as the UN General Assembly. They changed their schedule. Half the people dropped out and all these things. So it was all happening in real time and basically our, our perfect opening ceremony with all the, you know, just these, you know, heavy hitters and things, it fell apart at the last minute and everyone was kind of looking at each other. And so I wrote my boss and it was the weekend before the thing started. Let's say it was Friday afternoon. I wrote the email and I'd been, my whole team had been hustling for weeks and I was like, all I want to do is watch the university today. I want to take three hours off to watch this game and then I'll be back at work. (laughs) So I write this long email Friday. I said, look, this whole thing is falling apart. Here's what I recommend we do. We need to pull this person from here. We need to pull this person from here. Here's how we do it. This is my last thinking on it. You know, hit send on it. And so I finally sit down for my three hours off on Saturday and made the one mistake of picking up my phone one time, kind of 15 minutes into the game. And I got an email from my boss that said, call with WJC in 40 minutes about opening session. (laughs) And I was like, say what? You know, we had calls with him maybe once a quarter and they were highly scheduled and we prepared for days and days. And so I probably like put down my drink. I got on the subway. I went home and didn't really, I just read through my email and my ideas but anyway, I found myself on this phone call with, you know, half the organization because this was our big opening ceremony. And we got on the phone and, and President Clinton's chief of staff was like, sir, you, you saw the email I forwarded you from Christina. Uh, and so what are our ideas, people? And my boss is on the phone. My boss's boss is on the phone. You know, his chief of staff, like everyone's on the phone and it's just crickets. <laughs> and so I was like, they're asking for my idea. So I was shocked that, you know, <laughs> it had been, that it had made it this far. And I was like, sir, here's what I recommend we do. And da, 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 da. And so we engaged in this kind of 15 to 20 minute back and forth. Uh, that was just, I was just so in it that I didn't have time to be nervous about it. And my whole team was in the background like, go SAS. Oh my gosh, I can't believe. <laughs> so that was my uh, opportunity as a junior employee to get in there and, and give some good ideas. And so those, those sorts of experiences were awesome and gave me a lot of courage that when you've got a big idea, don't be shy about it. There's so much 
learned from that of just like raising a hand when it's an opportunity, when there's a pause, insert your voice. Don't be afraid of that, especially if in the beginning it feels uncomfortable or you're not used to presenting yourself that way or it feels like you're the junior most person in the room. And um, that has literally changed my life. Just that one thing is just not being unafraid of doing that. And that's something I really loved working for Eric Schmidt. I was at Google for 12 years. I can't believe, I mean, like in Google, Google years are like dog years. That's like, that makes me eternally. Because <laughs> we do so much packed into one year and I never imagined when they recruited me out of my PhD that I would spend over a decade there. But the reason I did was because similar to your journey, especially Clinton Global Initiative, I reinvented that role about every three years. It was completely different than the year before. And that was the common denominator with how I got that. But I, I really saw that modeled from the top and it felt like a safe environment to do that because Eric Schmidt as CEO was famous for, and it terrified people the first time it happened to them, but he was famous for calling on the quietest person in the room, often mm. the most junior person in the room because mm -hmm. he knew he would get a fresh perspective. Mm. You know, it, there's this novice factor to it where you don't know what you don't know. So you write right. idea from a different angle. But I think um, I'd love to hear more about while you were at CGI, you were there for a while, and it's obviously so value aligned for you. I'm wondering if you and I had a similar experience where that almost became a detriment because so much of my identity from being at Google for 12 years became wrapped up in this larger mission of, of the company and what we were trying to accomplish. It was actually really hard for me to put together an exit strategy and leave to my own company. What was your like there? And um, how did you recognize when it was time to take on the next challenge? Yeah. You know, that's a great, it's a good framing. I think a lot of my career path has been around this idea of like, find the purpose that drives you. And that's why I say I didn't really have a great fear of missing out because when I was committed to a cause or a mission, I really, I really dug in. And some of them I outgrew you know, when I said at the, at the YMCA, I tripled the size of the program and they didn't increase my budget. And I was, you know, it just outgrew it in, in a bunch of different ways. Um, Clinton Global Initiative was interesting. I, I entered in, in the challenging economic environment, but I was also, I'd been hyper-focused on youth my entire career path. And really this combination of, of education and employment and how we get the employment world and the education world to talk to each other and create pathways for young people. So when I started at CGI, I was in the commitments department, which is issue specific. It's around climate change and it's around global health. And for me, it was around youth education and employment and women's empowerment. And then I got the job directing the whole program department. And that was really a 50,000 foot view. But the, the idea was, you know, learn from the people that are doing it the best and then hone in and go and work for one of them. That's what I thought when I was, when I was really working in, you know, the education in commitments. And then once I got this broader view, it was, it was such an inspiration and it definitely became, I was young. It was my, it was like three full-time jobs. You know, I was like married to the job and didn't care. was quite happy being at my desk until 10 PM. Um, and I think you can only hustle like that for so long. I think, you know, three, four years, I was just, there's just a natural amount of burnout, but I also missed I missed my true love of working directly with youth. And I got an opportunity to highlight that issue many, many times and highlight entrepreneurs that I thought were doing phenomenal things. And, um, but it, it really, I missed being kind of on the ground and building and doing the work. And so 
when that became an overwhelming voice in my head, that's when I sought out the MasterCard Foundation. Um, Rita Roy, their president and CEO, we have the same alma mater. We both went to the Fletcher School. And um, I had met her there and talked to her about her focus on youth and the focus on Africa. And so I had followed and invited her to the Clinton Global Initiative meeting. We had, you know, a long mentorship. She's still a dear friend and mentor of mine. And so I went to work for her to really get back to the field and back to, to you know, kind of understanding the, the work on the ground. And then that really created the opportunity to, it created the space to think about Andela. You know, the funding side, being on a funder side was not the most comfortable for me. I did much better when I was kind of in the field with, with folks building. And so I learned that. Um, but I also got the opportunity to pitch a few ideas, one of which became Andela. And it started out as an idea between four or five different partners of the organ of, of the foundation. And then also a dear friend of mine that I brought in, it started out as just like a big old brainstorm. And then um, we ended up going in this direction. So the, the path at CGI was really being exposed to a thousand things and then missing kind of my true love of working with youth. Yeah. I am so, I, I, I am thinking of that Steve Jobs quote that he, he gave in his commencement address at Stanford says often in our career, the dots only connect in retrospect. Like in your career, it's so obvious to see how each built upon the other to prepare you for the next step. And that's definitely been true for me. So you, this um, opportunity with MasterCard Foundation took you to Africa for five years. You have this great experience of being hands-on, recognizing opportunities, how to recognize talent, how to bring together teams. Can you tell me, uh, walk me through your, your um, Walk me through the next steps of how you decided to take the plunge and do this full time. And specifically, I'm really interested in your co-founder choice, because I think those are two halves to a whole. They have a saying here in Spain where it's the, the other half of the orange you found. the mm. other. And that combination of the two of you being being a founder team um, was probably a big element of your early, early traction. Yeah. Walk me through that. Yeah, sure. So the consistent like the, the common thread through all of it was this experience of working with young people, loving working with young people, and then finding that even the most driven, persistent people in whatever environment I was working with often still could not find jobs if they, if the environment they found themselves in was not merit-based, you know, it, mm -hmm. it's, it was utterly random, dependent on geography, dependent on the, you know, societal norms. Uh, but that's, you know, before I went to grad school, I kind of really refocused on the education into employment piece. When I was at YMCA, I was like, if we focus on quality education, the rest of it just unlocks and unfolds. Then I went out into the world for several years and was like, this is not true. We are not combining the best of education with, you know, ready jobs and employers who are ready to take on people who are young, but ready to give of themselves. So I refocused on kind of that critical juncture. And so when I was at the MasterCard Foundation, this is what I was doing was helping Rita and the whole foundation work with their largest grantees, their largest partners to see how we could unlock more pieces of the employment, education to employment pipeline. You know, who was offering small loans 
and who was offering the opportunity for employers that needed jobs to get into the education system and offer some training so people were ready for you know when they graduated etc so this uh this you know it, part of my job was to pitch big ideas and pitch big collaborations so i was keeping a pulse on the best of ed tech in the united states and one of my dear friends who became my co-founder is jeremy johnson and he at the time was building to you which is such an exciting um innovation in ed tech i think when they started building online education was still very much seen as like a subpar product and they turned it around. They showed that form fits function. When you look specifically at what people can learn in an online environment and focus on doing it well, that you can offer great learning opportunities. In fact, they proved that in many cases, people learned more and had better academic outcomes and job placement rates when they did the right program online uh, as compared to on campus. And that's just transformative. And so I looked at that and I, um, Jeremy and I had this awesome ongoing debate about access to education. And I finally said to him with love, listen, don't tell me about access to education at Berkeley and Georgetown, you know, come and see a different part of the world that, that where people do not have that kind of access to education. And let's see how we can blow it wide open. Let's see how we can inject some new ed tech ideas in there. So he came to Nairobi in January of 2014. And we gathered the 13 largest grantees of the MasterCard Foundation and Rita herself. And then Jeremy was a guest speaker. And I said, I want you all to hear what 2U is learning. I want you to see what they're doing. And then, you know, I kind of pitched an idea, which was, why don't we look at most needed jobs on the continent that people are hiring for right now? And let's get to you or to you can train us on how to do this or who to partner with to build these types of, of very employment focused online degree programs. And then we will, you know, find the right partners and move young people into jobs. And so that's, that's kind of what I pitched. And we had some of my like heroes in the room, Fred Swanaker of African Leadership Academy and Patrick Awa, who's the president of Ashesi University. And I mean, these are mind blowing social entrepreneurs on the continent. So um, to make a very long story short, that didn't work. Everybody had their own five year plan. Uh, on completely online master's degree programs were just a, a, a bridge too far for the continent at the time. Um, all of us were still paying extraordinary amounts for high-speed internet and things. And so it just, it didn't work. But Jeremy certainly caught the bug. I hauled him all around Nairobi. We had a transformative trip and, and the two of us had conversations that continued on. And we really tried. We tried to make a partnership work. And it didn't and so we sat down and kind of cleared our heads and say and said how would this work if we removed tuition as a driver for revenue but we wanted to build something that was big enough to really make a dent in the universe and make a dent in the world what would it look like so that's how we happened upon or that's how we came to um, software development Ashesi University was offering it we thought hey that's a great partner that didn't work out but still engineering made total sense because the salary levels are so high that if you place one person, you can pay for several others to be educated and trained. And then we went out and talked to, you know, young aspiring software developers and 
so many people were passionate about that career path. And I mean on fire for that career path, which is what it took to make Indela work. And meanwhile, all of our entrepreneur friends in the United States desperately needed growing tech teams, couldn't find enough tech talent. So there was obvious supply and demand. And we were like, let's try it. Let's see if we can make this work. And so we ended up putting out a pilot in um, later on in basically June of that year that we had hundreds of applicants right away. And when we put a little bit more effort into it, we had thousands of applicants right away and were able to screen for extraordinary problem solvers. So we knew that the supply available to us was incredible talent, really, really incredible talent. And then we started talking to anyone and everyone we knew who needed to hire software developers. And we started talking to funders and investors responded. And so all of those things kind of came together at the right moment. And we all just said, leap in the net shall appear. I love this virtuous cycle that you created where you can really feel fill a market need and create opportunities for those who are hungry for the work. You've tapped into an untapped market of exceptionally high quality talent. Um, I've heard, I read a little bit about how you started this, which is what has now been called, you know, the startup that's harder to get into than Harvard. <laughs> and I am fascinated by the data-driven approach with which you took to create that. You didn't focus on creating a beautiful website or creating your business cards. You went straight into what's going to build the best culture and what's going to bring us the best talent. And you had data-driven metrics for how you were going to create that culture and continued virtuous pipeline of this talent that you were going to give future-proof careers. Can you describe that process? Because I think it's really inspiring and was so clever. Yeah, absolutely. So back to our, I'll take a good idea from anyone. So I hired a young um, data analyst who'd been working in um, both East and West Africa. And this guy wrote me a compelling email and he said, look, I want to help you build this and here's my background. And we were hustling so hard and he wrote me three times and I was just like, hey, you sound great. Next time I'm in Nairobi, we'll try and get a cup of coffee. And then he wrote me and he was like, I'm going to lead Uber in Kenya and scale it unless you take a call with me. And I was like, all of a sudden my schedule just opened up, you know, let's, let's have a chat. And he, um, we had one conversation where he was just like, here's the way my brain works. I think you should expand by looking at where the talent really answers the call. Yeah. Here's how I would do it. So my next trip, I flew him from Nairobi over to Lagos to meet me. And Evan Greenlow was really the driver of this uh, part of the business. And so we got lucky in one sense because we were using a test that looked at how you answered those annoying questions like, do you have to turn a project in on time or do you have to turn a project in with every detail, you know, just so. And there's no right answer. We took some guesses about who would make a great software developer and who would delight their clients in yeah. those tests, but we really didn't know until they were put in front of a client. And that was in most cases, nine months to a year later, but we had the data of how they looked when they applied. Mm -hmm. And so Evan and I really crafted this strategy to be like, you know, our company is deep investments in unlocking the human potential of these software developers. 
this is what we do is find the right people and deeply invest in them. And then we believe that they will delight their clients and be lifelong Endellans. And so the key question became, who is an Endellan? Who is one of us? So we were obsessive about defining the culture and then backing up and saying, okay, how do people align with that culture before they even join the organization? And how do they, um, you know, what do they look like as an applicant? And so we refined and tweaked and retweaked what that looked like. As we said, you are the superstar. You are the person who just really embodies the whole model. And so we looked at what those people looked like and then backed up and, and made the applications catered to you know, appeal more and more to that person. And so I'll tell you, um, a counterintuitive point is we got an article fairly early on that was like, you know, the startup that's harder to get into than Harvard. And that was because of the percentage of applicants we accepted. It was under a point, uh, under a 1% acceptance rate. So we thought that that would help us a lot. And it certainly helped us on the client side. It raised eyebrows. People were like, wow, that's impressive. It did not help us on the talent side. Because great aspiring, you know, software developers have a very certain set of characteristics and they don't feel that they're, you know, necessarily going to apply for, to Harvard. Right. They don't feel like that. And so we found that we were like turning away our ideal audience and had to go back and say, just apply, just apply. The test is not, you know, it's not a difficult test. It's a personality test. We want to see how you think and feel. We want to see if you're a life long learner. We want to see about your social and emotional intelligence. And oftentimes they would think that that was irrelevant to being good at, at this job. And what we found was we, there were traits that absolutely were critical to being good at the job. So we, we focused in on those. I think so many companies, especially startups, could learn from that experience because um, I definitely saw that to be true at Google. At Google, we had, even though recruited me from my PhD program, I had to take an exam before they formally made me an offer. And um, we also, whenever you are internal and you're um, doing hires, if you do interviews, they keep track of the scores that you give someone and correlate that to their future performance. And what we found, what we discovered was that the um, interviewers of female candidates underrated her likelihood of high performance. And so that gave us the data to solve for that, to solve for some unconscious bias. Mm -hmm. Also to hone in on those who have these really good senses, they can identify talent, especially underrepresented talent, and um, approach this from, as you said, from a cultural value standpoint, and really know how to hire for that, what questions to ask, what are, what are some of those indicators of future performance? I love that was part of your DNA from day one of really getting the right people in the door. And that's why you have such an exceptionally high retention rate. People stay with you for the long haul. You don't have to because you've really hired for, for the right fit and motivations. You know, and I'm going to say one more point on the, on the point about women in, in their application period. And this is just so critical. So to every aspiring women entrepreneur out there or people who want to be a great place for women to work, you have to create psychological safety around the application period, around their first touch point with the organization. We got this wrong at the beginning. I thought, hey, I'm a passionate female founder. I care so deeply about this. If I build it, they will come. False. Wow. They did not come. And I had to say, hey, what am I doing wrong? And here's a couple of things we did way wrong. We had male recruiters. 
Uh-huh. We had to get female recruiters out there that are like, I look like you, I sound like you. We, um, we found that at one point in time on the application, we had the option to put in a resume, to upload a resume. You didn't even have to. And people, women dropped off right there. They're like, I don't have an impressive enough resume. And I was like, but it's not required. And they're like, but still, obviously you're not going to hire me if other people are uploading. And I just, I went back immediately. I was like, take it off. You know, I, I, we're creating these barriers that we don't want. And then one of the most successful things we ever did was we created, we started doing all women recruitment cycles. And so we changed nothing about the application, about who was hired, about the, you know, rate of acceptance. We changed nothing about it except we called it an all women recruitment cycle. And we got over four times the amount of applicants. And so it really is, there is a psychological safety to, if you can create the psychological safety for women to say, hey, this is a company that where I can be safe, that desires women in the workplace and that, you know, really does like want the best. Um, then you can, you know, really build that culture and it's hard to fix after you've got, you know, a very low percentage rate of women in the company. It's very hard to fix. So I would strongly, strongly encourage people like figure that out at the beginning and it will, you know, serve you now that we know, just like, you know, Google took those, but how many years did they underestimate the, you know, women in their career paths and turn off like the most talented people? Yeah. So that's something worth obsessing over at the beginning, I think. Um, okay. We can stop the podcast right here. <laughs> a potentially world changing insight that you just shared with everyone. I really want to amplify that because it is so tempting. I was, I'm a natural born perfectionist and I actively fight that every day because perfection is so limiting when you, when for me, perfect meant or being ready meant being ready to be perfect. And so women tend to self-select out. Like you said, if we're not 10 out of 10 of all the requirements, we tend not to apply. Whereas men don't have, have been nurtured out of that kind of behavior overall. Um, That is a hundred percent right. And to this day, I'm like, you know, the board requirements say that I don't know if I'd be the best board member. Well, you know, I've raised a lot of venture capital, but you know, my, my co-founder was the lead on that. I wasn't, you know, just a, a constant steady stream of that little voice in your head. And we've just, we have to support each other in turning that voice off and putting ourselves out there. If you're not the right fit, you will, you will know that by the third round of interviews, a lot of things will feel off about it, but that initial step, just go for it. We have to shed our fear of it and get out there, put ourselves out there more often. You said earlier, what's the worst that can happen? They say no. They like, say no. That's the worst. Mm-hmm. Go for it. They say no. You learn a couple things. You meet somebody in the process. Maybe they'll call you up a year later and be like, you weren't right for that, but you might be right for this. And so I, you know, I've learned that again, there's very little risk in just, in just trying. If you do so in a professional manner, just putting yourself out there. And then I constantly, I constantly like nominate women for other things and say, Hey, you should do this. Or have you thought about this person? And, you know, and that too, I think women don't do enough of, we're too busy in our own heads saying, am I right for this? Whereas we can so many times, it's very easy for us to make a pitch for another woman. Just do that. You know, just, just, you know, make a point to five times a month, recommend a woman for something for some other position. I'm writing that down right now as my, <laughs> after this, because I could, Three more. I have a, a best friend in, in Texas and she and I do that for each other constantly. Whenever I have this moment of panic, 
I am like, give me the speech, give me the speech. And she can give me the five reasons why I'm the only person who can be doing what I'm trying to do right now. And I do the same for her because it's so easy on her behalf. Mm -hmm. I'm like, well, obviously this, and she does it for me. And so I think we do need that. Okay. I'm, I'm, I will take yeah. that. I will do Thank it. you. And I'll, and I'll go one step further, which is, you know, we had this opportunity to be at the cutting edge of some of the best young technologists on the continent of Africa. Mm -hmm. And so and you know, Jeremy, myself, and our other our other co-founders, we got invited to speak all the time. And we started doing this thing where invited or not, we would just bring one of our incredible software developers with us. And so I would try, I would say, thank you for inviting me to the panel, but like, what about Tolu Komolafe? What about Yeti Seni? Like these people are incredible. And and for I understand the reasons why people want a co-founder and they, but we just started putting these people out there. And I was like, you know, they happen to be in the they happen to be right here with me in the recording studio. And more times than not, people would listen to them and be wowed by their story. Um, so I just started, you know, doing this too. Like totally uninvited was like, hey, meet this incredible person. And and you know, it worked quite a bit. So even do it when you're not invited to do it. <laughs> I love that. I love it. I mean, there's so many opportunities for good. You see all this potential across Africa. I know it was a world changing moment for me when I did that at Google. We toured eight different countries in Africa to do this, to really empower the next generation of entrepreneurs and diversify the internet. And um, for me, that just blew my mind, the like ingenuity and creativity and, and um, beautiful perspectives that were so different from Silicon Valley, which is the whole point of, of diversifying it. It was really energizing for me. What I discovered was after that trip, one of the hardest parts for me was knowing where to focus. And I think um, you at Andela, you've had this wonderful problem of rapid scale. There's so many ways that you can be helpful. I think one of the biggest problems for my clients as I'm doing consulting is knowing what to say no to. I think that's the key in scaling, right? What has been your experience? How do you know what to say no to and where to focus your energy? Because we, we can't do it all, unfortunately. Yeah. Moment. That's a great point. So I really learned from the um, amazing rock star I told you about, Evan Greenlow, to follow the data. So we fixated on who, you know, so, so I think the biggest question for the company is, you know, we are unlocking the human potential of these people. And so, you know, who do you make a four to five year investment in? And we let that really drive other major decisions. So Lagos, Nigeria, we started because my co-founder E, Ian Alua Aboyeji, knew everybody. He's sort of one of those like Uber connectors. And, you know, if there's like 170 million people in, in um, Nigeria, he knows like 168 million of them or they follow him on Twitter. And so that was an obvious place to test the premise. Then we got thousands of applications and they were highly qualified problem solvers. And so that made obvious sense. Also, from my experience working in Palestine and other parts of the world, you don't start in the easiest place. You start in the hard place. And so Lagos was um, very logistically challenging. We cut our teeth in the hardest place and then it was much easier to expand from there. But when we looked at our next country, Evan was like, we need to let the talent tell us where to go. So we opened up our applications in three other places, in Kenya, in Ghana, and in South Africa. And essentially, we got 10 to 1 the applicants in, in Kenya. Wow. We didn't commit to going anywhere. We said, are you interested in an offering like Andela? And we, you know, Kenya self-selected. And 
So obviously it was painful. So we tried not to overcommit to other places, um, but it was painful to not be able to go everywhere. And once Andela was up and running in multiple countries, we got amazing offers from officials and team ministers to go. And it was so painful to be able to say, like, we're really only able to, to you know, offer, um, you know, a quality product to, to this many, to this many people. But I think that's where great entrepreneurs should be. Um, this should be a sign that you're doing things right. This should be a sign that you are absolutely going to have competitors pop up and you better damn well be proud of that because what you're doing is great and it's caught on fire and you can't provide enough for all of those things. And so this is, you know, this is how those opportunities should come about. People should, you know, both collaborate and in some cases compete to, to fill that demand. So um, yes, that is one of the hardest things for us. It was geographic location. We'd have impassioned letters. One time I got a letter from a software developer in a jail who wrote to me a page and a half about how they wanted to be an Andela developer. And it's just like, it was heartbreaking to, um, but what we did was we said, Hey, we're going to be hyper-focused on, on who's a lifelong Andelan. And, uh, and this is what we can provide. And then we served those people very, very well. Hey, so many nuggets of wisdom. I just want to like, I'm going to send this snippet of our to every one of my clients. They tend to come to me when they're having these beautiful problems that come with rapid scale and growth. Mm -hmm. Systems that worked before are broken now because you kind of have to reinvent yourself um, for this yes. stage. Were there any, I'm sure there's probably many, but were there specific things that surprised you? Like some of these things you might have anticipated to be yeah. challenges with growth. Was there something that surprised you? You're like, well, okay, I did not think I was going to have to, to yeah. figure I mean, I think the thing, one of the things that surprised me and that continues to surprise me is perhaps one of the most obvious, which you said it yourself at Google, like you have to reinvent yourself over and over again. And I think for the first three, four years, this trip, this really tripped me up because at, you know, at other things, I think high performers and hard workers, like you get good at a thing and you get positive reinforcement for being good at a thing and you continue to do said thing. And as an entrepreneur, that it's often the opposite cycle. When you get good at a thing or when you get proficient at a thing, you learn that you're probably not world-class at that thing. So yeah. you go hire someone who's world-class and you give it all away and you give your whole team away and it's heart-wrenching. And then you start over and you're terrible at a bunch of things until you, you know, learn to do it. And then you know what good looks like. And then you go hire someone who's excellent and you do it over and over again. I found that really exhausting and it ripped my heart out two or three times. And I, I honestly, like, you know, my co-founder and I went through so many tough times because it was just, it's hard to let go of something that you love so, so much. Um, and so by the fourth or fifth time that happened, I was like, you should not be surprised by this anymore. And then I really learned if you're scaling, if you're really scaling, your job should change every eight to nine months. And this is the deal. You got to learn to be outside the comfort zone. And by the time that this really mattered was when I stepped down as COO and we hired in a world-class COO. It was one of the hardest decisions. Like I loved my team of country directors. I would take a bullet for them. I still would, but they needed a better boss than me. They needed someone in that particular role. I'm still, I was still a coach and a mentor. I was still a dear friend of theirs. I am to this day, but they needed somebody who had done this thing and scaled it up. And so I went from being like 
the biggest naysayer or like clog in the wheels to being like the biggest champion of getting a world-class COO in there. But that took, you know, counseling and a hard look at myself. And so I think at first that was painful and surprised me a lot. There's, you know, logistical challenges all of the time, but that piece of scaling, I think was most painful and surprising to me. Wow. I so relate to that. I, I find um, a commonality among CEOs is there's a moment where you realize that your description requires that you are surrounded, you're sitting at a table surrounded by people who have expertise you don't have because you hired for this particular area. And so some people can have this moment of pause or, or panic sometimes of not knowing what you don't know, because you, if you've hired well, if you've hired up, aren't the expert in those areas anymore, but your job description is to drive the right kind of decision-making. How do you ride that balance of, of hiring people for the seniority of skill that you want delivered, but still remaining the authority figure in the room? Or maybe that's not how you think of it. Maybe. Yeah. You know, I think it's particularly in an international context, you must hire the expert from that country. And there's a lot of things that you could, even if I wanted to devote 50 years of my life, I'm still not a Nigerian. I do not have that experience in my blood, in my bones. And, and so I hired for people who were committed to the success of young people in their country who would lay down on the tracks for it. And that's a thing that I could never be. So from the get-go, I was like, listen, I have to find people that have this level of commitment to their home country. That's a great country director in my eyes. And it's a skill set that I don't have. So I think from the beginning, I was like, it's got to be a give and take. Uh, I think a lot of entrepreneurs and founders have a sense of what the future could be. And so you are playing, you're doing this tug of war with your team of like, I hired you because you are amazing at human resources and you've done it for 25 years and I want all of your expertise and I want you to hold space for that the future could look different. That is a tough, wow. that's a tough road. You know, I think there's, um, we ended up doing a couple things that I'd say really helped. One was we made a pretty complex decision matrix, but we're like, who should really own a decision? And why should they own that decision? And when there's a disagreement, how is that disagreement resolved outside of any one particular disagreement? And that helped us tremendously. So if it has to do with only the country of Uganda, it's the, it's the Uganda country director's decision, period. If it has to do with four or five countries, then you know the head of all African operations needs to take a look at it. Ideally, those people can agree, but if they can't agree, how do we make the decision maker really, really align with our values? And then I think there's a couple cases in which the CEO should have a veto or ultimately have a higher fire decision. Mm -hmm. um, and that's that I think is when it's really, really comes down to your culture and your values. And they are doing two difficult things, which is moving an entire organization and a group of people towards what the future can be while dealing with, with the realities and, and hiring people who are great because they have experience and pushing them to think in a new, in a new direction. And that's not easy. That's, you know, that's a hard line to, to walk. It is not easy, but you make it look so, which I <laughs> of a CEO. So my last question, which for you feels a little bit less relevant because I feel like it's been the theme of our entire conversation, but traditionally my last question to all podcast guests is what gives you hope for the future? I feel like you've centered your work around this, but is there a summary statement that you'd like to leave us with? 
Well, I think we all need some hope in at the end of 2020. So I'll say the following. The COVID crisis has been uh, devastating for many of us. There's some real hope in the world not going back to the way it was. And, and so I'll say the following. Like Everyone got convinced overnight that you could do great work and you could do it remotely. The magic of that is that the world of talent just opened up to them. And so I'm extremely hopeful because when the crisis first started, I thought no one's going to meet anyone new. We are going to just more deeply entrench in people that look and sound like us. You know, this is not a good thing, but we had to learn to work in this new way. And so I'll tell you, I'm hopeful that the future of work is much, much more diverse. It is much, much more international. I feel like you know, people will really open themselves up to who's the best, not who's the closest for this particular role. And then by default, they will see the, the real magic of having a totally different opinion on their team. So that's one of the things that I'm really hopeful for in 2020 and beyond. Absolutely incredible incredibly inspiring conversation. I could talk to you for days without running out of questions, but thank you for spending this hour with us. Where can people connect with you or support the cause? How can people get involved? Thank you. Well, I'm, uh, I am at uh, Sass Christina on Twitter and I'm on LinkedIn and active on there. So find me in any of those places online and then follow Andela, follow Andela's um, you know, they're very, very active on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. This is Andela on Instagram. I love their, their Instagram feed. So definitely follow and think about, you know, just think about ways that your organization can get more women, give more diversity, be open to those calls to action. Thank you so much, Christina. This has been incredibly inspiring. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Bet on Yourself podcast. If you're like me, you have a lot of new insights and ideas of things you want to implement from this episode. Don't worry if you were listening to this while walking the dog or putting a baby to sleep or driving and didn't have hands for you to take notes. We've done the hard work for you. Check out the show notes here in your podcast app or on my website, annhyatt.co, for additional resources. While you're there, you can also sign up for my newsletter, which always supplements these podcast themes with additional free resources. May I ask for a quick favor? Please click on that follow or subscribe button here in your podcast app so you don't miss an episode and give us a five-star rating. I'd love it if you'd also share this via your social media with your friends and tag me so that I can see what resonated with you, who you would like to hear on future episodes, and what topics are on your mind. We'll be back next week with even more content to support you in your big bets. I'll see you then.